For those who don't know me, I'm Larry Southard. I was a long-time elder here at Living Waters Church, and it's my privilege today to introduce our guest preacher, Kyle Harless. Kyle, would you come on up? Please welcome Kyle. You met his wife, Hetty, earlier, and Kyle and Hetty and their three children were faithful, longtime members of Living Waters Church until circumstances caused them to need to move to Harrodsburg, where they are today. But uh, while they were here, Hetty and Kyle uh, served in a children's ministry. They led a life group, and Kyle served a number of years as a very faithful deacon. So we were very grateful that Kyle was available when uh, Stephen called upon him because you're going to find, if you haven't heard him preach before, but, but those of us who are old-timers, uh, we were here when we suddenly became aware that, that this man has a, an anointing, a gift of the Holy Spirit for preaching God's Word. So um, prepare your hearts. <laughs> so Kyle, let me pray for you before you begin. Father, uh, as I say those words, prepare your hearts, I ask you to help us prepare prepare our hearts to receive and respond uh, to your word today according to your will. Lord, I ask that that your anointing upon Kyle will be er very evident to him and to those who hear this message today. And uh, Lord, change us in some way because of what we hear and how we respond. In your will, I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, it's good to be here. Um, it's been a blessing for both of us. Um, I, uh, for you to know, I have been a state employee for about 30 years. Um, I've started in the Department of Corrections, and now I work for the Department of Revenue. Um, during this time of the year, we do something called the Kentucky Employable charitable campaign. We call it KECC. We donate money so you can wear, you pay a dollar and you wear jeans and it goes to this group of charities. Uh, one day while I was working at the Kentucky State Reformatory, um, we had an ambitious KECC director and she just wanted to earn the most money she could. And I don't know how she did it, but she had this vision of we're going to have a carnival on the, on the prison grounds. And all the inmate clubs sponsored a different booth. There was a hamburger hot dog, you get your face paint, and um, my friend, Mark, he was in charge of the dunking booth, and he was very just as ambitious for charity. He and I, he and I have been collaborators before for charity. Um, that's a different story, but uh, he decided, I don't know how they did it, but the warden approved it, and the day of the carnival came, I had some work to do, so I came into the office that day. And I did what I had to do, and I thought, you know, I'll go check on the carnival and see how the carnival's going. So I walk around, and then all of a sudden I run into Mark. Mark goes, Mr. Harless, Mr. Harless. I said, I need a big favor. I said, okay, what do you need? He goes, the dunking booth. They've lost momentum. The, the momentum is dying, and dying. We only have like an hour and a half left to go before we end. We want to finish strong. Would you be willing to sit in the dunking booth? And I said, Mark... People don't want to dunk me. I'm a good guy. I, I've been with people. At the time, I was running the segregation unit. And I was at, I would say, I make people in their darkest days, in their lowest moments, and I'm, I'm comforting to them. And he goes, Mr. Harless, trust me. <laughs> so you, gotta, you can tell this is where this is going to go. 
Um, so I trust Mark, and I say, all right, Mark, if you think it'll be good, um, I'll do it. So I wasn't prepared to do it. I was in blue jeans and uh, just a T-shirt. So I'm thinking, so I walk over to the dunking booth. They get ready to set me up. And um, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. If you ever asked to do this, go first. Do not go last. Because one thing the dunking booth does not have is chemicals. So everybody who went before me left a little bit of themselves <laughs> in that pool. And that pool started out as drinkable water, but it was not drinkable water when I'm looking down. It was brown and yucky, and I'm, and I'm thinking, well, um, at least it's only for an hour, and the momentum's died, there's not too many people around. I'm thinking, I won't have to do this too much. And then the loudspeaker came on. The loudspeaker goes, attention on the yard, attention on the yard, we got a special announcement to make. That's right, Mr. Harless, the man who runs the segregation unit, will be sitting in for the last hour of the day. Yes, this is your, ch- this is the actual quote, this is your chance to dunk the seg Nazi. <laughs> I look over at Mark, I go, seg Nazi? Really? And, and Mark does a, he looks away and he starts doing, ooh, do, 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 do. <laughs> Doesn't know what he's saying. So I, I'm sitting down there, I'm thinking, then I look up. And I literally see about six to 700 inmates running to the dunking booth area. Then as they got closer, their hands were full of tickets. And it just and it hit me all of a sudden going, I'm going to spend a lot more time in this water than I ever I thought I was going to. And now an emotionally secure, mature person would have just accepted it. That's why I went on an emotionally secure person. So I got the big pouty lip. And I start throwing things down. They, I can't believe I'm doing this. And the thing is, the more I throw a fit, the more they wanted to dunk me. <laughs> and I'm just going down and down, and my, my big upper lip, upper lip is out. And then I just started threatening them. So I threatened things I couldn't do. I threatened to transfer everybody to the maximum security prison. I said, "Get the prison! Get the get the bus lined up! You're all going in as soon as I get out of here." But the more I threatened them, the more I pouted the more they wanted to dunk me. Now, if you ever understand the, the economic of a dunking booth, it's set, if you rate it a thrower, between how many times out of 10 they would actually hit the target. A dunking booth is set up for probably about a four to six person. You, know, you have a good chance of making it, but um, you could miss. The ones and twos, they don't want to do it because I'm not going to waste my money, I'm not going to hit it. The eights and nines and tens... They don't want to do it because I can get that anytime I want to. But what was happening is the ones and twos were buying the tickets and giving them to the eight and nine. <laughs> and they were high-fiving each other. They went, and then finally, by the, by the grace of God, four o'clock came, and it was counting time. And I went home. I was in no shape to be home. I went home. I'm taking a shower. And Hetty goes, no problem. <laughs> And the next day came, and then Mark knocks on my door. He goes, Mr. Harless, are we okay? And I said, yeah, Mark, we're okay. Um, he came in, he wanted to give me a T-shirt. And I said, Mark, because a T-shirt in prison is a very valuable thing. And I said, Mark, I don't deserve a T-shirt. I didn't earn it. You all, you all put this together. You all organized it. I said, I just showed up at the end and acted a fool. And um, he said, no, Mr. Harless. Not only where you did it, but the way you did it, you raised more money in your hour 
than anybody did in their two hours. So I took the T-shirt. Um, the reason why I told you that story is, is because I want to establish myself. I am a villain. I am somebody you want to see dunk. Not only do you want to see dunk, you don't even know you want to see how much you want to dunk me. Now, Hetty, on the other hand, she's a hero. Um, she, she works she works at the school, and on your bad day, when little boys and girls have a bad day, they go see her, and she has a beautiful smile, a beautiful, kind person, and she will give you whatever you need, whether it be clothes, school supplies, food. So wherever we're in the store, and um, they see Hetty, they light up, and they run to give her a big hug, and it's really exciting. Um, but when they see me, they just want to dunk me. <laughs> So as a villain, um, a few years ago back, we preached a sermon series called Summer of Heroes, and um, I really enjoyed that. We all, the preaching team, took a different hero. Um, But as a villain, I always think, you know what? For every protagonist in the Bible, there's a really good antagonist. And um, I want to take a villain, I want to look at some of the villains, and I want to take a look at a villain today. And it's Jesus' villain. Jesus' number one villain, and there was a group called the Pharisees. Um, I want to see. I want to. I want to take a look today. I want to see what did Jesus say to the Pharisees. What did Jesus do? Then I want to talk about what Jesus taught about the Pharisees. So, um, all right. So let's talk about what did. Well, first of all, who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders, and their job was to keep the law. You got to remember they were they were under the Roman rule. Because when Israel was a nation, they forgot God and served other gods. And God left his hands. And the Pharisees' job was to make sure they did not forget God. Which is a noble mission, but in the way and the manner in which they achieved it was, was a problem. And Jesus had a problem with them. Let's take a look about what Jesus says. Um, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12... There's a story. Jesus is preaching and teaching in a home. And in the middle of it, the people come from the roof, take the roof off, and lower this man down who's paralyzed. And Jesus says something that was probably um, unexpected. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees like, who are you to say sins forgiven? Only God can forgive sin. What are you saying? And Jesus' response was, I'm going to tell you, was it easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But just so you know that who I said who I am, I'm going to tell him, get up and walk. He says, not only am I God, but I'm going to give you a miracle to reinforce I am God. And the Pharisees are like, why? What are you talking about? Another thing he said could be found in Luke 19, 28 through 40. That is the Palm Sunday. I like the story in Luke because um, as Jesus is going through the crowd and they're laying the palm branches down, they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King of Kings. And the Pharisees stop him and they use the one word that I like. It's called rebuke. Jesus rebuked them. Rebuke has a form of correction. He says, don't just make this stop. Tell them you are not this king who is coming. 
Tell them, correct them, correct their thinking. You're not this person. And Jesus' response was them, to them was chilling. He says, I tell you this, if they do not shout this, the very rocks will cry out. Jesus says, I am king. And if my kingdom is not based on your acceptance of me, I am king whether you acknowledge it or not. And if you don't acknowledge it, and if they don't acknowledge it, earth itself, creation itself, is going to acknowledge this. And the Pharisees were not happy. But now let's look at what Jesus did. We heard about what he said, but what did Jesus do to make the Pharisees unlike him? In Mark chapter 3, 1 through 6, is what happened on a Sabbath day. Jesus was in the temple, and a man with a shriveled up hand came. And the Pharisees all looked at each other and he says, What will Jesus do? What do you think Jesus will do? Will he heal on the Sabbath? Will he violate the Sabbath law? And we all know what the answer to that is. He healed us, he healed the man, knowing they were looking at him, knowing they were going to accuse him. And they did. It even says that that is when they plotted against him. The Pharisees began to plot. And another thing he did was he associated with sinners and tax collectors. Luke chapter 7, 36 through 39. He's actually at a Pharisee's house, at a Pharisee's table. A woman comes in and begins to wash his feet. And the Pharisees looked at him and says, if you knew what kind of woman was washing your feet, you would never, ever let her touch you. And Jesus says, you don't know. He says, you have violated the very word. She knows more who I am than you do the Pharisees. She's willing to say. And in Mark chapter 2, 15 through 17, he's actually at Levi's house. Levi was a tax collector. A man who actually was considered a traitor to the Israel nation. Sold the Israel nation out to collect taxes for the Roman government. And he was actually eating and feasting with a tax collector. If you knew who you were associated with, you would never associate it with them. Because the unclean will make you unclean. And Jesus says, no, I make the unclean clean. And I go out because who needs a doctor? The sick. The well does not need a doctor. And the Pharisees were angry. And another thing that he did, he did not fast. As the customs. The Pharisees fasted. John's disciples fasted. Fasting was a place to get to God. But Jesus didn't fast. And his disciples didn't fast. And the Pharisees asked him, he says, why do you not fast? And Jesus says, you don't fast when the bridegroom is here. You don't fast. I'm going to go away and they are going to fast, but not now. There's a time for fasting. Jesus says, I am the son of man. 
You do not fast in my presence. You feast in my presence. And the Pharisees hated him. Hated him. But I believe they hated him more for what he said and what he did, but what he taught. I think he, if you look at Jesus, he taught some very hard things. The first is the parable of the lost son. It's found in Luke 15. This is a famous story where it talks about a man who has two sons. And one son says, I want my inheritance now. And he goes off to the far country and he, he blows it on all kinds of harsh living. And he is returned home and he is reconciled with his father. But if you look at it, the parable of the lost son is a really sad story because the father had two sons and only one son, one and only one son was reconciled. At the end, the other son was in the field pouting and is upset and refused to come into dinner to feast. Only one son was reconciled. And clearly, that one son represented the Pharisees. There's also the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's found in Luke 18, 9 through 14. Jesus tells us the parable. A tax collector and a Pharisee walk into the temple. Starts out as a joke, but I guess um, the Pharisee runs up to the front and talks about himself. It says, oh, God must be, so, must be so pleased with me. I fast. I give a tenth of everything. I follow the law. I'm not like these sinners or this tax collector here behind me. I am your favorite. I do everything I'm supposed to. Tax collector sits back, hand over his heart, bows down. When he was afraid to go to and he goes, forgive me, Father, for I am a sinner. And again, one and only one was reconciled that day to left the temple. And it wasn't the Pharisees. And that made the man. And then um, Jesus, what I has calls, has a John Denver moment. And let me tell you what the John Denver moment is. Hetty and I were newly married and we were at a church, and I don't remember what the, church, what the preacher preached on. I don't remember his, his um, sermon notes. All I remember is in the middle of the sermon, he announced, John Denver's in hell. And for all of you who don't know who John Denver is, John Denver was a folk singer in the 70s and 80s. Um, I'm sure if I sang some of his songs, you'd probably recognize them. Um, thank God I'm a country boy. Country roads. Take me home. I'm leaving on a, on a jet plane. Yeah, he's in hell. According to that preacher, he didn't, he didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't hide it. He said, John Denver is in hell unless he has changed his ways. Unless he has turned over, he's in hell right now. And I just remember that. That's all I remember. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has a John Denver moment. It's found in chapter 5. 17 through 20. 17, 18, and 19, 
Jesus affirms the Pharisees. He says, I did not come to violate the law. I came to fulfill the law. And those who teach the law should be commended. And if he had just left it at 19, maybe he and the Pharisees could get something together. But unfortunately, verse 20 exists. Verse 20 says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus just say? I can see you, you're asking, a, asking somebody that went to the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say? He said the Pharisees are going to hell. He said the, Pharise- the way of the Pharisee leads to death. The what you cannot follow it. That unless if your righteousness has to be greater than the Pharisees, you have to perform better than the Pharisees because the Pharisees are fall short. Wow. The way of the Pharisee, you cannot obey the law well enough to earn salvation. The Pharisees' response were, we want to crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. I'm going to crucify him for what he said. I want to crucify him for what he did. And most of all, I want to crucify him for what he taught. Because if he teaches that and I do not respond, the children of Israel are going to be left out. And we need to protect our position. We need to protect our wealth. We need to stop this Jesus. And they did. They did. They were successful. They um, brought him to the cross, and they crucified him. But I was listening to Larry Osborne, and he made a very good statement. He said, did you realize um, Jesus didn't have to be enemies with the Pharisees? He really didn't. He chose this. He didn't have to heal on the Sabbath. He didn't. Most of those people he healed had, that, had, that, had their affliction for years. Years and years. What is 24 hours going to do? And if he, if he does die, well, Jesus has proven he has power over death. He didn't have to heal on the Sabbath. And he surely didn't have to say what he said. He could have healed that paralyzed man without saying your sins are forgiven. He didn't have to announce his kingship. And he didn't have to associate with Sinners and tax collectors. He chose to. So why? The question is why? Why would Jesus choose to make an enemy of the Pharisees? I believe there's two reasons. One, Jesus' mission. Do you know when Jesus' mission was? To seek and to save the lost. You found that in Luke 19, verse 10. Um, that is the story of Zacchaeus. I don't know if you know the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and Zacchaeus was a short man and wanted to see him, so he climbed up in the tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. I'm going to go associate with the tax collector. And at the end, Zacchaeus said, came to Jesus and was willing to right his wrongs. 
And that is just before he goes to Jerusalem for the cross. I love that. That's, I always think Zacchaeus is not just a story, but where in the story he takes place. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost. And if he associated with the Pharisees, if he let you know that the way of the Pharisees, if he did not contradict it, if he did not count it, he, his mission would be compromised. Because the way of the Pharisees does not lead to salvation. You cannot earn your salvation. You can't work your way to salvation. And finally, I think the reason why he made enemies of the Pharisees was he didn't want to steal his joy. He didn't want the Pharisees to steal his joy. What is joy? Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, For the joy set before him, he was able to endure the cross. What kept him on the cross? What kept him there when he could have got down? It was the joy that was set before him. And the question is, what could that joy be that you could be able to endure the cross, the pain, the suffering, the humiliation? What was it that kept you on the cross? What was this joy you were talking about? I believe it's found in Jude, verse 24. It says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. See, on the judgment day is not about anger. It's not about, it's not about guilt. It's not about shame. The emotion on judgment day is joy. Jesus says, it will give me joy to present you before a righteous God. Without fault, without blame. And if I let you follow the way of the Pharisees, you're going to steal that joy. And I was willing to endure the cross for that joy. Amen. Amen. But I don't want to end the nice service at this. I want, it's, it's nice that we talked about what it takes to get to heaven. But Jesus does one more thing for his enemies. You know, there's actually two men that came out of this sect, the Pharisees, that Christianity does not exist today without. I'm sure you can name one of them. One's very popular. One wrote the book of Romans. One wrote, planted all kinds of churches. His name was Paul. Let me tell you what Paul says in Romans 5.10. For if... Now, I always want to know, we never know where Paul was on the day of crucifixion, but we clearly know what side he was on. He was on the crucifying side. He was a member of the Pharisees. He was a member that wanted Jesus to die. This is what he writes. For if, while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled, reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? An enemy, God's enemy. Paul was God's enemy. We do not have Christianity today. We do not have our theology today without Paul. 
But there's one other person I think is even more important than Paul that's lesser known. Um, that if he does not exist, Christianity does not exist without this man. This man was simply known as Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea did not plant churches. Joseph of Arimathea did not write a whole lot of Bible. But what Joseph, he did one thing. And the one thing is crucial. He, said, he went to Pontius Pilate and says, Can I have the body of Jesus? Jesus died a criminal. And he would have had a criminal's burial, which is a mass grave. And wild animals, particularly vultures and hyenas, would have eaten him. But we have Joseph of Arimathea. We have a tomb. We have a stone. We have a seal. We have two Roman soldiers. And now the critics of Christ have an empty tomb problem. They have never overcome it. And they're still trying to overcome it today, but they never have overcome the empty tomb problem they have. And without the empty tomb, we cannot longer sing, an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. Thank God. I just, Joseph of Arimathea, I think the main point is, sometimes the simplest obedience has the greatest impact. Christianity does not exist without Joseph Arimathea. He's a linchpin character. I'm going to ask the altar ministry team and the um, praise team to come on up. Um, this has been a season of Thanksgiving. It is my favorite holiday for a lot of reasons. Um, but one thing I'm grateful for is I'm thankful for how God treats his enemies. As a villain, I am grateful. I've heard a lot of people say, and you've heard everybody say, he goes, if I walked into the church, the ground's going to shriek and swallow us. Lightning's going to come. The church is going to blow up in flames. You've all heard somebody say something to that effect. But let me tell you what Scripture says is going to happen when you enter the presence of God. First thing that's going to happen is you're going to feel loved. You're not going to feel anger. You're not going to feel hatred. You're not going to even want a sense of revenge. You're going to feel a sense of love and great love and acceptance. Number two, you're going to get your sin debt marked, paid in full. For this is what Paul meant when he says, I am no longer ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What he's saying is, I'm not ashamed of it. It does what it says it'll do. It'll take the unclean and make them clean. It will take your sin debt and mark it, pay in full. It will be able to stand in front of a holy God, righteous, without blame. The gospel does what the gospel promises to do. Period. And then you're going to get a name change. You're no longer be known as God's enemy. You're going to be known as a child of God. You know, your name will no longer be Mr. and Mrs. It'll be son, daughter, child of God, an inheritance laid up in heaven, bought with the joy that's set before him, that cannot be taken away from you, that cannot be 
shaken. It's secure. And finally, if you allow me, God says to my enemy, you can share in my glorious purpose to seek and save the lost. I will entrust you with my mission. What an amazing God we serve. And I'm thankful that God treats his enemies. And villain says me that way. Amen. Stand and sing this chorus. This sings my soul. you that there will be altar ministry teams here and for those who are online there will be a, a number you can call and some will be there for the next 30 minutes but I want to end and give you the blessing of Jude 24 again to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy amen you are blessed to be a blessing